This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Xero. As a listener of this podcast, you are probably keen on getting industry insights, staying ahead of leading edge technology, and boosting your network. Well, I have some good news for you. This June at ZeroCon 2019, Xero will bring together hundreds of tech-savvy, future-minded professionals just like yourself from across the Americas and the entire globe. Come join Blake, myself, and this collaborative community in action June 18th and 19th in San Diego. To receive a special discounted ticket to ZeroCon 2019 in San Diego, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.com slash zero. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.com forward slash X-E-R-O-C-O-N. Book your ZeroCon ticket today and we'll see you in San Diego. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And we got some more reviews this week, David. We got more reviews, more reviews. And not only that, uh, iTunes changed their, their page so you can actually see the reviews. I can see the reviews without using an Apple product now. I'll read the first one. This is from Damien K. 1970. Great resource for up-to-the-minute accounting software news. Blake and David do a great job of providing mostly unbiased reviews of the accounting software world and make it enjoyable along the way. They make great sparring partners when debating topics, but most of all, they provide an aggregated verbal feed of the latest business and associated software industry news. Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Damien, for agreeing that we are mostly unbiased. In today's world, that's a strong endorsement. Mostly. <laughs> Mostly. Perfect. <laughs> uh, uh, another review came in from uh, Fogged in Books from Twitter. Keeping me informed. I look forward to the industry insights and current events each week. Lots of good nuggets and a solid dose of entertainment to the side. Thank you so much. So, David, what what is the uh, big news this week? Uh, Can we talk? So, uh, we talk about Intuit, right? H&R Block and Intuit are trying to crush the... IRS and stop them from building their own free tax software. Yeah, this got a lot of traction this week. Huffington Post picked this up. The House passes a bill hampering free online tax filing. My initial reaction when I saw this, my gut was like, oh, I see this every year. And I feel like I've seen it every year. So kind of historically speaking, there's a free file alliance. And it's H&R Block and TaxSlayer and TurboTax, and they all agree to provide some level of tax filing for free based on income to a percentage of Americans. Mm -hmm. Basically, I think it's something like about 70% of all taxpayers can use this for free, but only about 3% take advantage of it, right? Um, So many actually go to the the brick and mortar stores, et cetera. Why aren't they using it? That's what I've never understood is it's free. You can use it to file, file federal for free, right? But people don't do it. My guess is because it's a website hosted on the IRS's website with some links to all the other package, software packages. Is my, my probably my guess? It has horrible SEO exposure, right? Well, like, like nobody I imagine, gets to it. Uh, do you think that could be deliberate? I don't know. If House passes bill hampering free online tax filing is not a great headline. Here's a worse one. This is the House passed a bill banning the government from creating free tax preparation software like TurboTax forever. That was in Business Insider. And uh, the featured image is a a pair of congressmen, old white congressmen laughing. Um, This is the part that I don't really understand, or maybe you can explain to me, David, coming from into it. So the the IRS in the past has not been able to build their own free tax filing service because of this alliance, right? So what's the deal with like the forever part. So it's interesting that you said that I'm looking at my Huffington Post article and I don't see the word forever. So obviously this is being reported different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe forever is like the the better headline here. So that's why I think when I saw this story, I didn't think of anything of it because 
think I even looked on our Wikipedia, the Free Finance File Alliance. Like this goes back to like 2005. Yeah, maybe even earlier. And some of that agreements also at that time, a lot of even Intuit, I think, did it at that time. These like instant loans at super high interest rates for filing your taxes and uh, you'd get your tax refund back as Best Buy gift cards. And so some of the agreement to get um, that, that was kind of a negotiation, right? Like people like Intuit, they agreed to stop doing those types of uh, practices with taxpayers in exchange. They'd file file taxes for free. Every year, this seems to be renegotiated and goes back and forth. But you, I think that's the bigger question is how come so many, how come nobody's using this? Well, so here's a possible explanation is that in an article linked from the Business Insider article, uh, this is in ProPublica, looks like a detailed analysis. It says that critics of the program say that companies use it as a cross-marketing tool to upsell paid products, that they have deliberately under-promoted the free option, and that it leaves consumer data open to privacy breaches. And of course, what it totally looks like is that H&R Block and Intuit have lobbied these congresspeople, and this is serving their interests, right? If the IRS doesn't create a free product of its own, then the Free File Alliance can sort of build a, a version of this that they don't really promote and people don't end up using. I don't know. It doesn't look good. The optics are not good here. Planet Money had a podcast out this week, and it's actually a replay of one from a few years ago um, when, when this came up. And it's about the lobbying of Intuit, Nature, and Block. And so it's really, really the story. So we should get that linked in. Ultimately, this is a as American as apple pie, right? Because the argument from a lot of people is, oh, the government should just send you a form, you sign it and you're done. The government should just do this for you. Well, yeah. So, And the reason is that for the vast majority of people who would qualify for this program, they only have employment income. They have a W-2 and they just take the standard deduction. So the IRS, through your, their employer, already has basically all the information that you need to file the form. So why can't the IRS just send you something they've already filled out and you can choose to just accept that or you can then file your own return? Like it seems very sensible to me. And so that a podcast from Planet Money talks about that. They did an experiment and then people were thought it was the most amazing experience to be able to do that. But it leaves the door open to um, from a taxpayer rights perspective, right? Like some of the arguments are the government could just start inching up that tax rate and you'll just sign it. Thank you. I'm good. People won't pay attention to what's happening in the government as much if you're not somewhat more in tune with the, your tax situation. Got it. So the, the argument is that people will be more disengaged if they aren't filing their own returns. I guess that's possible. I just feel like people are already pre pretty disengaged because the whole thing is so complicated that, you know, even when you go to a when you go get your tax return done at a tax shop, you don't really look at the forms. No lay person looks at the forms to try and figure them out. Do they? I mean, I don't even want to do that. <laughs> I'm a CPA, right? I mean, I do look at them, but I feel like most people wouldn't. It's interesting because if, if the IRS has a page for people to go and do their taxes for free. Yeah. So now the IRS is going, hey, we're going to build so tax software. And it's a website you can go to to do your taxes for free. Are people actually going to go to that website instead of the website that they already have that offers a free tax filing? Well, with the current website, the way it works is it's a referral, right? So you go to that yeah. page and then you get referred out to Intuit's free file program, whatever that is called, right? The free version of TurboTax. And the argument is that, well, you know, Intuit wants you to pay. So they're going to like figure out how to steer you into a paid product rather than actually get you to the, uh, the free the thing free that you qualify for. 
I, I get that. Yeah. I, I get that yeah. argument. That makes sense. But look at our last week's show. The governments do not have a good track record of making software. No. So, <laughs> well, hey, you know what I would be okay with? I would be okay with the free file program continuing and the IRS not building their own program if there were actual like metrics. Like, in order for the free file program to continue, they have to get it above ten percent, right? Not just like three percent. Ridiculous. Maybe that's maybe that would be a compromise. Yeah, and and you're right, and that that would require. The IRS to try harder, we require H&R Block and Intuit and everybody else to try harder. But then you're com- you're competing with the Liberty Tax, you know, on the side of the road, flipping signs. Well, moving on, let's follow up on a story that we've covered. Uh, it was a few weeks ago. We talked about cashless stores, so stores where the owners uh, have decided to no longer accept cash. You can only pay with credit card, and the controversy that is created in some cities, uh, Philadelphia, flat out banned cashless stores recently. San Francisco is considering a ban. And there has been talk in LA where I am uh, about that. And the reason is lawmakers feel that it disenfranchises some people who don't have credit cards. So what's new on the cashless storefront? So the Miami Herald had an article, it's titled, As Cashless Stores Grow, So Does the Backlash. And what I liked about this article is it actually, unlike some of the other articles, this one actually has some stats. And some of these stats even possibly tie back to what we just talked about with the house bill stuff in the um, either under, underbanked or low income uh, people that they can't pay for software. Um, same thing, they can't, they're in bank, so they can't get credit cards. So a couple of things that stood out to me, um, 6.5% of American households, so that's 8.4 million people, do not have a bank account in any way, shape, or form. Wow, that's... And this is from the FDIC. That's incredible. Right? Essentially, there's a larger group called the underbanked. And what that is, it means they have a bank account, but they really rely on alternative financial services like check cashers, um, payday loans. And there's about 24 million people that are like that. Even the article talked about somebody who was an immigrant. He was able to get his checking account, but it took him two years to get enough cash built up in it to where he could you know, feel free to use his debit card. Uh, yeah. This number is probably even greater. So even people that do have bank accounts aren't, aren't able to use it. This issue disproportionately affects African-American and Hispanic communities. About 17% of African-American, 14% of Hispanic households have no bank accounts compared to just 3% of white households. And that's again from the FDIC. So it really is, it is an issue of discrimination. But there's also stats in here from a small business owner, because I I really understand that point of view as well, right? Yeah. So uh, Leo Kramer, he's the co-owner of Dos Toros, which is a taco shop. Uh, that was kind of the focus of the article. He said that the volume of cash transactions at his store has fell from about 50% a decade ago to 15% last year. That makes sense. So the cost and logistics of him handling cash doesn't make as much sense as it used to. And he's been uh, held up or robbed twice at his locations. I, I said this in our in our previous episode. I think it's a good solution. I think that instead of banning cashless stores like Philadelphia did, which is just bad for businesses and forces them to bear costs that they don't want to bear, instead of doing that, create a program where your underbanked citizens can get access to debit cards. They can then use you know those prepaid debit cards, right? Make them free or something like that. And then they can use it at those businesses. And it helps everybody, right? The businesses make more money because they can serve those customers. 
It's a good use of taxpayer money. It helps businesses and it helps consumers. I don't know. What do you think, David? Tinfoil hat here. There's people that don't want to be tracked and you just want to use cash, you know? You create an ATM. It's like an ATM, right? You you put your $20 bill in the ATM and it spits out a prepaid card with 20 bucks on it. One thing this article that happened, uh, the the gentleman who was trying to buy the tacos and he didn't have his credit, he didn't have any cash. He Basically, there's a whole underground economy now sprouting up. Like, hey, you got cash. I'll buy your tacos for you. You give me your cash. And there's a little fee involved. You know, we do that all the time here at the office. People don't carry cash. And so when uh, when somebody wants to go buy a burger from the burger stand behind our, our office that is cash only, they will go on Slack and ask, hey, can I Venmo somebody 20 bucks for a 20? That's how we get cash around here. So, so, so there's an opportunity here. If, if, if you want to make some money on the side, go to a cashless store, hang around out front, and you could like but take a dollar of the transaction. transaction. Exactly. There's a new <laughs> business model here. Maybe you can sell Bitcoin on the side too, right? You know, be a whole, a, a whole service. Hey, so David, uh, going down your list, I, I loved this article here that you brought the title, Using Quicken for Farm and Ranch Accounting. So this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. And Quicken still a thing? Yes. So there was an article yesterday, yesterday in the journaladvocate.com, journal-advocate.com. And the, the headline of the article is using Quicken for farm and ranch accounting. Okay. <laughs> to me, this is kind of like the what the hell of the week, because even let's just note this down. Intuit was founded with Quicken. Quicken was the initial product that Intuit uh-huh. was founded on. And after 30 years, Intuit sold Quicken because Intuit had Mint in the cloud, TurboTax in the cloud, QuickBooks in the cloud. They sold Quicken personal finance software. And it was always really for personal finance software. Yeah. And people have used it for businesses, et cetera. And so it's a professor and he is an Oklahoma and he's actually spent most of his career, obviously, because he probably started this when Quicken started on how to customize and tweak and squeeze Quicken to run your farm or your um, ranching business. But the argument is that it's user friendly, readily available, flexible and inexpensive. Right. But I'm just shocked that, you know, here we are, we're doing the cloud accounting podcast and there's still people trying to use Quicken. Oh, to run their business, not even QuickBooks desktop. This is Quicken to yeah. run their business. I mean, it's, hey, it's there, amazing. There are people that are still running on like QuickBooks 1998. I don't know if it was even around whatever. Well, <laughs> QuickBooks 1999 was amazing. Like that was a really good solid. That was a good year. That was a good one. No, it actually was really good. <laughs> I'm not. I'm well, not just saying that. I bet you there will be people running QuickBooks 1999 on some virtual server somewhere in the year 2099. Right, because they don't have to pay for upgrades anymore. That's cool. And they're manually keying in those transactions because so, they don't have the bank feeds. Yeah, it was uh, an oldie but goodie, I guess. I was really surprised to see an article this week about Quicken. Since we talk, we're talking about apps, we're talking about Quicken. Let's talk about a cloud app, right? This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Zero has an update. Their new invoicing is now landing for all customers, and you can learn all about it on the Zero blog. So what is new with Zero's new invoicing? There's a better user interface. It is more modern and easier to use with a clean layout. That's always nice. But the thing you'll really care about is that you get automatic saves. So you no longer have to worry about losing unsaved changes or hitting the save button. Uh, One of the cool things, too, is that they're using a little bit of AI. When you start typing in a description uh, and you tab over to the account selection column, it will automatically choose an account for you, an expense account, income account, well, income account in this case, 
based on the description. Hopefully that sort of AI will increase data quality for accountants because you've got business owners and their employees in there doing invoicing. They may not always get the account right, but this can help ensure they they have a greater chance of choosing the correct revenue account. I like that uh, feature you talked about, not so much the AI feature, but the saving automatically along the way. Because I feel like half the apps I use do that and half don't. And it's getting very confusing when things are saved or not saved. And then sometimes... I'm scrolling around looking for a save button when I don't need to look for a save button. So hopefully this becomes a standard where things just save as soon as you leave the field. It's yeah. a save. It's, yeah, a save. it's, it's a really save. infuriating when, when you're working and you realize that you didn't save it. And that should just be standard now. Um, Any other app news? Yeah, some more app news here. Canopy now has a mobile app. Just in time for tax day, Canopy is practice management software for tax professionals. The app is compatible with iOS and Android, available on Apple iTunes and Google Play. It looks like most of the features in Canopy are available in the mobile app, uh, such as uh, accessing files, communication directly on your uh, device, client contact information, tax documents, tax records. So you know now now you have, now you can never get away from all the tax work in your firm. Yeah, so now I can work from the soccer field if I need to. If yeah, I need yeah. to close down a client record or communicate with my team, I can do that through that. That, that makes sense. Yeah, maybe you've got that one last thing that needs to happen, right? You're holding everybody up, but uh, you don't have to be in the office now. So maybe that'll help <laughs> firms cut down on busy season Saturdays. I, I find it odd that they released that they offered this on April 11th. I mean, maybe it's late. Maybe they wanted this out two months ago, but like, Nobody's going to download this and use this <laughs> in the next six days. I'm going to guess they were trying to capitalize on um, tax day news, right? Because they're a tax app. That's my guess. Uh, I got one more. Actually, I got two more for you. Uh, okay. TaxJar is now integrating with NetSuite. So that was interesting because TaxJar has always been a, an app for you know small businesses. Ever since the Wayfair Supreme Court decision, which is just totally turbocharged the sales tax automation world uh, because now so many more businesses have to collect and remit sales tax all over the country in multiple jurisdictions. Tax jars has been growing like crazy. And now they've got this uh, NetSuite integration, which clearly indicates that they're going up market. They're looking to target mid-sized companies that are on NetSuite. And I can totally see them butting heads with uh, Avalara. Yeah, them going up markets. Really impressive because I think Techstar always really kind of prided themselves as like, hey, we're the we're for the smaller guys. We talked about they took that huge round of funding. They're going out market. They're going. They're expanding in all directions, and we'll be hearing more and more from Techstar, I'm sure. And the last bit of news in the app world comes from Caleb Jenkins on Twitter. He posted a screenshot of a new beta feature that I had not seen in QuickBooks called Receipts. It looks like some sort of receipt match functionality. You can drag and drop files into uh, this receipts window, or you can forward via email. And it looks like you can match these receipts then to transactions in QuickBooks. So this yeah, is- it almost reminds me of like the old school online banking screen. Uh, the top half of the screen would be all the online banking transactions. And the bottom half of the screen would be the, your transactions in QuickBooks. And then you would match them. And so this kind of feels the same way where the top half of the screen is all the images of your receipts and the bottom half kind of is your bank feed yeah. and that, or your transactions. And you're just dragging, dropping, clicking. I have not seen it. I just saw a screenshot, but uh, it looks like it's um, truly, truly is just a receipt matching. I, I wonder how much automation there's going to be in this or if it's going to be a, a manual process to match up those receipts and those transactions or to create transactions out of the receipts. 
be interesting to see. I mean, I, I, I thought this would, this would be inevitable when Zero acquired HubDoc. You know, Zero's obviously going to build that functionality into their app eventually. I think they have to, to make it to make the acquisition worth it. So this is clearly QuickBooks now saying, no, you know, we're going to build out our moat and defend our, our app by building the same type of functionality. So I love this competition. It's great, right? Competition I, I mean, is so good for, for end users. I just run everything through auto-entry and it just sh- it just goes into QuickBooks and then it matches the bank feed. Like, I don't have to match anything. So, so if you want to see this screenshot, the link to Caleb's post is in the show notes. And if you know more about it, Shoot us a tweet. So you've got some news about QuickBooks Online Advanced, right, David? The QuickBooks Online Advanced story feels like it just keeps chugging away. Well, I, I still can't figure out what, like, why anyone would want to buy QuickBooks Online Advanced, <laughs> unless you know the only the only differentiator between Plus is twenty five simultaneous users, which you and always, then there's you've always said it's like ridiculous to even have that many people in the GL. Well, I think they make in the olden days of QuickBooks Desktop, right? There was not a lot of options for people. Yeah. So you would use QuickBooks Desktop to run your whole entire company. You just would. And you would invite your your warehouse staff to get in there. Um, if you had a lawyer and he needed to get in there, he could get in there. You just have everybody's fingers in the accounting system. And the whole point in my brain has always been with online accounting software, and the GL. You right. might have your accountant, your CFO, two bookkeepers, you have couple people and a bigger company in there, but the rest of your staff, if you have a warehouse and you have 40 employees in the warehouse, you get real warehouse inventory software. Right. And those people only interact with the inventory software and the inventory software, t- because of APIs, talks to the, to the GL. In my opinion, if you need 25 people in QBO, you need somebody to look at your processes. To me, to me I think that's a serious problem. I also question even having like the Fathom stuff built in the reports because all that's going to do is encourage more managers to be poking around in your QuickBooks right. like versus giving them Fathom separately. Like, hey, here's an iPad with Fathom on it, right? So it's funny because last night there was a, or this week, there was a podcast on the QBO show. It was an interview. They did an interview. It was an interview. Christine, Chris interview. Christine Byrne, is that right? Yep, that's correct. She's their group manager of business operations at Intuit. I, I didn't really understand the value of it at this point. And there was a question at the end that she didn't answer. And Stacy and, and Richard, who host the QBO show, they, they asked her like multiple times, are, are you trying to make QuickBooks adv- Online Advanced equivalent to enterprise? Is that the ultimate goal to bring parity? And I've always assumed it is. And it seemed kind of like obvious, right? If they're, especially if they're implementing these uh, user limits and the transaction limits and whatnot, like they got to build some actual features from enterprise for people to want to pay $150 a month for this, right? But she like she wouldn't answer the question. Like why not? They think it's a tough question and people have been asking this question for years. When is uh, and people those are argument like I'll switch to the cloud when QuickBooks Online has the same features of QuickBooks Desktop and that yeah. was people's argument against QuickBooks Online. But the reality is QuickBooks Desktop is now 25 years old and you could argue it was done in version four, version five, right? So it was done in 1996. And then every year, 800 features got added to it for the next 12 to 15, 17 years. Well, yeah. And so, yeah. so for feature parity, to really have feature parity, what, are you going to wait around another 15 years for QuickBooks Online to have feature parity with QuickBooks Desktop? No, it's no. It's never going to happen. And that's why it's a hard question to answer. Well, it's but, never going to happen. Right. But so there are, there, but there's, you can divide it 
in the feature set between big features that you need to have to be competitive with enterprise and then all the little features they just added to get people to upgrade every year. And the major features that they need to add are stuff like advanced inventory or advanced, uh, I don't know what it's called, but like the different price levels, advanced pricing, right? Where you can create really intricate like pricing rules about if I sell uh, 10 of something, then it's this price versus if I sell eight of them, right? I don't know. It just seems like that's where they're going with this. If they if they aren't, then they're not going to be able to to get these enterprise customers ever off of desktop. And so I, I just think it's weird, like not to answer that question. Why not just be honest about it? Or if you can't answer it, just say no. I can't tell you at this point. That's not something we can reveal. It just felt always, felt very strange. I've always felt it would be QBO plus apps or zero plus apps. Like you, like zero and QuickBooks are kind of your GL. The account or bookkeeper, that's their domain. All the other employees of the company use, if even your sales team, you can put them into quoting and CRM software that yeah. does the sales and custom prices and price levels and shipping. All that stuff would take place in the other apps and not in the accounting systems. Like they, And that's always been my point of view. But after this interview, I was really thinking about this um, in my head. And what do you get? QuickBooks Online Advances for growing businesses. And I'm trying to think, okay, what is something that, that's growing or maybe has a lot of data in QBO want? And I was like, is it faster? And so I actually went and like searched a little bit. So they are claiming it's faster for if you have to um, enter invoices faster. Whoa. You can do like a bulk entering of invoices. Yeah, a bulk import of invoices. Like, ooh, big whoop. Like, <laughs> you know? But, but I mean, is it like... I could see people paying a premium, just like I pay for faster internet at my house than maybe my neighbor pays at her house, right? And I could see people paying a pr- businesses maybe paying a premium to have a faster QuickBooks Online, uh, right? Like, like because it's either uh, you know it's it's on a faster server stack, it's not on a shared server. I I don't know, right? But I could see like people paying for bonus type stuff. I I guess I I think they want the enterprise features. That's what they want. I'll tell you the the one thing that I did figure out from the interview. There's a way around the limits. There's a hack. Christine said that if you already have more accounts or more classes or locations than the new limits, when the limits go into effect, you'll get to keep those, right? You won't be able to add new ones, but you'll be able to keep the ones you have. For example, the new limit on accounts is 250. If you have 1,000 accounts when when the limits go into place, you will be able to keep those 1,000 accounts and you'll be able to edit them. So all you have to do is go create. <laughs> so, so wait, okay. okay. Go, so this yeah, go create hundreds of accounts and classes that you don't need right now. Uh, when the limits go into effect, you'll be able to keep them. And then you can just edit them and name them if you ever need them. So that's my hack for you, if I understood it correctly. Yeah, because if you're not using them, they're not going to show up on reports and be in your way. Exactly. Call them Z class one, Z class two, and just have that over and over again for 500 classes and you can do that with the same chart of counsel just be at the bottom you'll never see them in your list that's an interesting uh possible hack now <laughs> the, the bad thing is with the saying this somebody's going to go do it and i know they'll do it because people will do anything to get stuff for free i've seen crazy stuff happen uh with auto entry where you know an accountant will sign up with 14 different emails because they don't they never want to pay for it so i guarantee you somebody's going to try to do that but it's interesting that you picked up on that as a possible uh Wait, wait around this. Uh, yeah, our audience, the our audience will appreciate it. I hope. Please do it and tell me if it works. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So not. we talked about. Let's see. We talked about Quicken for Ranch Farm and Ranch Accounting. We talked about the cashless stores. Um, so David, this week I did a I did a webinar. I haven't been on a webinar in a little while as a guest. I was presenting to the Texas Society of CPAs Houston chapter uh, on remote work. 
Uh, ironically, I was doing it from the office, but as you know, I am a fairly remote mobile uh, worker. I can work from anywhere, right? I have that flexibility. And I did when I was in public accounting too, which I really loved. So I've always been interested in remote work. I also ran a completely remote accounting firm. So I presented on remote work to this uh, this group online. And I've got some stats that I can share with you on remote work. I find this, this kind of interesting. This is from the uh, 2018 Anytime Anywhere Work Survey. I've been sharing some stats over the last couple of weeks. I'm a little obsessed with this. You're very obsessed with this survey. It's just really well done. Convergence Coaching did such a good job. So last week, I shared a stat about unlimited PTO. Here's some stats on remote work. How many firms offer day-to-day anywhere flex? Meaning that you can change your hours around, right? It's, it's just flexible, right? If you've got a doctor's appointment, no need to request the PTO. 70% of CPA firms that were surveyed have any day-to-day anywhere flex. And 30% do not. And actually, I was kind of shocked that it was that large, right? 30% of firms don't give you flexibility in your life. Like that's, that's kind of cruel. I don't know if that surprises you, David. Um, and then I've got one more stat here, which is uh, on the work from home. So does your firm offer work from home programs? So this is different than anywhere flex. For example, anybody, if they want to, can work at home on Fridays. Or maybe you have employees that always work at home, that sort of thing. So here's the stat. 45% of firms have employees who occasionally work from home, and 43% of firms have employees who regularly work from home. Put those together, and 88% of firms, if I got that right, 88% of firms support working from home these days. Only 8% of firms do not offer any work from home programs. 4% don't offer, but are thinking about offering those programs. Interesting. So uh, I had Homer from last week regarding um, some of these uh, employee benefits and survey type okay. things. So I will, I will get those up, but I'm going to give you homework for next what, what? week. I think I saw an article from HBR, um, Harvard Business Review, about how remote workers uh, get disengaged faster or are very highly likely to quit soon. Uh, well, I have another stat or another study that says the opposite which I can share with you right now. Oh, so, um, okay. There's a really great Ted talk. If you search for Nicholas Bloom, I'll put the link in the show notes, search for Nicholas Bloom and, and remote work on YouTube. You will find his Ted talk. He is a Stanford professor who did a study with a Chinese company based in Shanghai. The company is called C-Trip. It's China's largest travel agency. They have 16,000 employees. And the CEO there was interested in giving employees the work from home option because office space at their Shanghai headquarters is extremely expensive and because the employees had very long commutes to work. Kind of sounds like uh, Los Angeles. They did a two-year study in which they picked 500 employees and they divided them into two groups. There was a control group that continued working at the headquarters. And then there was a group of volunteer work from homers. They had to have a private room at home, uh, at least a six-month tenure with the company, and decent broadband access to qualify. So 250 worked at the office, 250 volunteered to work at home. So a true test, a true, true A-B test. It was incredible. The work from homers increased their productivity equivalent to a full day's work. It doesn't say this in the survey, but that to me is like 20%, full day of, of work every week. Basically, the work from homers would work a true full shift or more versus being late to the office or leaving early multiple times a week. And they found it less distracting and easier to concentrate at home. 
employee attrition decreased by 50% among the telecommuters. They took shorter breaks, had fewer sick days, took less time off. Oh, by the way, it was better for the environment because they weren't commuting. And the company saved $2,000 per employee on rent by reducing the size of their headquarters office space. Kind of a ringing endorsement of letting people work from home, right? Now, there, there was one downside. When the, when the study ended, half of the employees who had volunteered to work at home decided to return to the office because they felt too much isolation working at home all the time. But uh, the other half decided to keep working at home. So I think what this suggests is that working from home could make employees feel more isolated, but they'll definitely on the whole be more productive. And if you gave employees the option, right, if they wanted to work at the office or at home, that's probably the best of both worlds, right? Because the people who really want to work at home will work at home and be super productive. Uh, and the people who get too lonely can come to the office. Yeah, and have that balance, right? You, you That freedom, right? Like, and that's ultimately what cloud accounting gives you, right? It gives you that freedom. So I did find my 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 uh, promise from episode 68. I, I promised to create a survey. And actually, I created two surveys. Now, um, unfortunately, I think everybody's heads down and not a lot of people responded. So survey number one, we actually had 15 responses. I'll read this, uh, how I put it on Twitter. I get unlimited PTO and the accounting bookkeeping firm I work for employs 67% said it was a, they were a solo to 10 firm. 13% said medium firm, so 11 to 20. 0% said 21 to 74. And 20% said 75 plus major firm. So this really aligns to the survey data that I kind of questioned. It's, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I think the numbers show it's the major firms and the solo firms. And the ones in the middle, the medium and large, are the ones not offering unlimited paid time off. Interesting. I guess it, so. The the theory that we talked about last week, which we we really still haven't answered the you know why of this, but the theory is that with the the major firms, they simply have the staffing to be able to support this, and the small firms are lean enough to be innovative, or they can move quickly and make these changes. Whereas it's those firms in the middle that have trouble changing that culture, changing that policy. Or I don't have anybody that works at a firm between 21 and 74 <laughs> following my podcast, <laughs> the podcast. So that, that could be the other reason. That's, that's also possible. It was a very, very small sample size. Yes. You had a story here about Alexa. This kind of scared me because I have like three Alexas in my house. This got picked up pretty big um, across all the, the media. Bloomberg, I think, broke the story. So Amazon workers are listening to what you tell Alexa. And this was on Bloomberg, and it was uh, April 10th, 2019. Long story short, this is a disclosure story. The, the marketing materials, the, the privacy policies, they say they use your, uh, your data to train. Hey, we use, we use your request you make of Alexa to train so Alexa gets better. Even in the privacy settings, you can disable that okay. setting. But they even still use, like, even if you've disabled those settings, they'll still listen to your recordings to use it. And I think for us, and this is where it ties back to us, is the whole, if you're an accountant or a CPA and you're you're, you have information being stored overseas and you have to disclose it to your client, that's, the, I think, the key here. The team comprises of a mix of contractors and full-time Amazon employees who work in outposts from Boston to Costa Rica, India, and Romania. Oh. So, I mean, theoretically, these recordings are being anonymized so that they have no idea who they're hearing. But what if... They screw that up and it isn't anonymous or that or there's something in the recording that identifies who you are. Even though it's not your full name and address, it's associated with your account number, your your first name and the device serial number. I, I think where this gets weird and creepy 
I mean, and apparently the, the article talks about Apple has the same thing with Siri. They have the same policies. The, the, it, the, they're handling it a little different ways, but they're doing the same thing with Siri as well. So, so the thing to know, though, like so people don't go freak out, is it's not that these devices, well, at least according to the story, the devices aren't listening to us all the time or recording everything we're saying. That's correct. It's only, it's only recording when you use the wake word. So if you say Alexa, I apologize if I just woke up your Alexa. Uh, if you say, you know, Siri, then that is what triggers the recording and that part is what gets recorded. But people have, I, I've read other stories too about people accidentally triggering those wake words all the time. And so conversations that you may not have wanted to become Amazon's uh, property are in their database. These people work, they process about a thousand of these requests. They listen to them, they manually correct so they're training, they're training, they're training, they're training, they're training, just like, just like people are driving in those self-driving Ubers and they're training Uber to drive. The same thing's happening with AI, right? Humans are somewhere involved in this process, training it, right? But I think people don't know that's happening. I think it's so much more visual in an Uber, right? right? Like, Hey, there's a guy sitting in the car. He's teaching the car to drive. People don't really see it happening in other stuff. And then it's also kind of, I feel like there's a creepiness factor with the voice, right? If, if you have a receipt that's scanned and somebody's typing the data, like it's not you or, or like outsourced accounting, right? We talked about this before in previous episodes. If somebody else is taking a piece of transaction data and typing it in, or it's, it feels like so different than somebody like listening to my voice that I did not know was going to listen to my voice or my recording. Yeah. I think if there's some level of creepiness, that's a little different with, with this. Uh, but then inadvertently, like you said, people have recorded stuff. And the employees, right? This is stressful for them because some of them have heard a sexual assault, they think. They've heard of somebody singing in a shower. Like, they've heard things they don't oh, yeah. want to hear. Well, I've got another creepy story. Would you want to hear this one? Okay. Great. Here you go. Stack them up. This was in the New York Times. The headline is, The hottest app in China teaches citizens about their leader. And yes, there's a test. Apparently, the Communist Party in China, has an app. You can download it from the App Store. It's called Study the Great Nation, and it is an app devoted to promoting President Xi Jinping and the ruling Communist Party. Think of it as a high-tech equivalent of Mao's Little Red Book. The article features Chinese citizens who are spending hours daily on this app, checking news about Mr. Xi and brushing up on socialist theories. Now, here's the creepy part. It's not optional. Tens of millions of people in China are now using the app, often under pressure from the government. It is part of a, an effort by Xi to strengthen ideological control in the digital age and reassert the party's control and, and primacy at the center of Chinese life. Can you imagine, David, like an app that the government created that we... Like the yeah. Trump app? We all yeah. have to. Can you imagine we all have to download it? And... You know, they know if we're using it, right? So the app can monitor how active you are. And the more active you are, the, the better your social ranking becomes. They've also got this social ranking system now in China. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah the, the, it's like it's a, a way of basically giving like, points to people and, uh, you know, tracking their, their social credit um, by what they do. Like, and this is one of those things. Yeah, essentially, it's like your credit report had a baby with your Facebook and Twitter profiles. <laughs> And, and they're just combined and you have this score and it just follows you around. And apparently if you get this app, your score goes up. So here's the real question. How do we get the Cloud Accounting Podcast into this app? Because it's got 100 million users. We need our own app so that we can monitor our listeners and impose our ideological control over them. <laughs> so here's my tie into accounting. So firms 
are always talking about how do we create a good culture in our firm? How do we train people better? How do we, oh, boy. right? So here's the thing. You can use the same principles that the Communist Party in China uses to establish control over its people with your staff. Create an app. For your I, firm. <laughs> create an app for your firm. I, I bet you the big four already have these. I, don't, I bet you if we look around, they already exist. So yeah, that's my pitch is like if you're at a firm with a budget is create an app and then uh, use it to establish your culture in your firm. You can quiz people on like the firm pillars. Uh, you can train them with videos on new policies and procedures. Actually, if it was done in the right way, it would not be creepy and it would be really, really cool. You know, these these apps can be used for good and for evil. Yeah, so I would love for us to uh, have our own app. So if you guys want to, one day when we launch an app, how would people go about finding that? Well, they would... Follow me on Twitter it's at Blake T. Oliver, uh, or they could connect with me on LinkedIn, or they could follow the Cloud Accounting Podcast on Facebook. Just search for us there and give us a like. Where should people uh, reach you, David? Uh, same thing. I'm on Twitter at David Leary. And if you would like to get the show notes emailed to you every week, you can go to my website. You can subscribe to my email list. Just go to cloudaccountingpodcast.com, click on the subscribe banner. And you'll get those show notes emailed to you automatically so you know there's a new episode. You can read the show notes and click on the links. A little piece of this article talked about how this app um, is used as a dating tool. You could use it to screen potential mates. If you see a guy on the subway using the app, you know, you should marry him. So maybe maybe you guys should use uh, on your dating profiles, if you guys are out there single and you're dating, feel free to say, hey, I'm a cloud accounting podcast listener. Cloud accounting podcast listener. Help you screen out a lot of the fodder there. On that note, David, great talking to you. And I'll see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.